Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again today. Uh, I encourage you to grab your Bible if you have it with you. Our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. I'm going to read the whole thing. It'll be on the screen during the sermon as we're going through. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll go through it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would be at work in each and every one of us this morning as you speak to us, correct us, encourage us, challenge us with the text. Holy Spirit, you know where each of us are as we come into this space. And I pray that you would meet us where we are and draw us closer to Jesus Christ. Lord, give us ears that are able to hear, hearts that are willing to understand and obey your word. Continue your good work of transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All week, I have struggled with how to begin this sermon because today, on Father's Day, we are talking together about what it means for God to be our Father. But it's a difficult topic for me because of my own relationship with my earthly father. I genuinely don't know if my father was a good man. Perhaps he was. I know a little bit of his biography, and I know what I experienced in the home with him. My parents were together until I was 15 years old, and that's when they separated. And the reason they separated, because my dad was a very difficult man to be around. He was angry and he was bitter. And very often, my mom and I were the recipients of that bitterness and that anger. And I know I'm not alone. I know many of us have grown up with fathers who are this way. And we hear people talk about really good relationships they have with their father and that sparks a jealousy in us because we wanted that and yet the relationship we had was anything but. My father, he had me in church every week, but who he was in church and who he was at home were very different people. 
And every week I'd go to church and I would learn that God is my heavenly father and I would take all of that I knew of my earthly father and I would import that into this idea of a heavenly father. And so my heavenly father became unpredictable and angry and moody and bitter. And my Christian life was one of trying to not anger God, of walking on eggshells because while my father may have been a good man, I didn't know that good man. I knew the father at home. And it's a challenge for me to preach on Father's Day because God is our heavenly father. And throughout my Christian life, I've had to learn how to reorient my understanding of father, to remove my definition of father and replace it with God's definition of father. And this has been a lifelong journey. It was one that really came crashing home to me when I had kids of my own. And I'm looking there at this helpless little baby, and I have to decide if I will be the same angry, bitter father that my father was, that his father was, that his father was. This was an inherited demon that I grew up with, and I was terrified I would pass it down to the next generation. And the only way that I was confident that I wouldn't pass it down is if I had a correct understanding of what it meant that God was my heavenly father. And to remove all of that pain from my understanding of God as father and replace it with who God declares himself to be. Because God does call himself our father. That's terminology that comes from him. We didn't decide that we would call him father. But one of the pervasive, predominant themes in the Scriptures is that God is father to his people. It's not the exclusive theme. There's a couple other themes that show up, and even little mini themes. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, 18, God is described as giving birth to his people Israel. In Isaiah 49, 15, he compares himself to a nursing mother. But throughout the Scriptures, the dominant theme is that God is father to his children. We see this in Exodus chapter 4, in Jeremiah, of course, in Matthew and the Lord's Prayer. Here in Exodus, this is during the 10th plague. This is when God is saying, I want you to let my people go. He gives the reason that the 10th plague will be the death of the firstborn. He says, let the, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. He's saying, You have my son in captivity, and if you do not release him, I will take yours. And Jeremiah, while the people are in exile, he says that he will plead with the people to come home, even with tears, because I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim, that's another name for the tribes in the north, Ephraim is my firstborn. And Jesus teaches us, pray then like this, our father. So God is very clear that he is our father, and he wants us to relate to him that way, which is why all of the pain that many of us bring into that equation needs to be dealt with and set aside so that we can relate properly to God as father. How do we understand the fatherhood of God? Well, I think there's a couple clues even in these texts, because he evokes his fatherhood in times of great redemption. The Exodus is the great redemption story of the Old Testament. The people of God enslaved in Egypt, 
and rescued and liberated, taken through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. And he says he's going to do this. He's going to rescue his people because he is their father. Redemption is fatherhood. And fatherhood is redemption. He redeems us because he is our father and he loves us as a father. He sees us and he loves us and he chooses us and he brings us home. That's what we get from Jeremiah 31. He sees his people in exile and they're in exile because of their own sin, because of what they've done. They've rejected God over and over and over again. But God says, I see you and I love you and I'm choosing you and calling you home even with tears, because I am your father, and you are my child. Fatherhood language is evoked when the rescue of his people is brought into view. I see you, I love you, I choose you, I call you home. That is the kind of father that God is. In our tradition, we believe that the scriptures are the inspired, infallible Word of God. They are the ultimate authority in all matters of life and faith. But we also believe in secondary authorities. We believe that God at times will call together people to write secondary authorities. And so in our church, we have not only the Scriptures, but we have the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. And these have authority in our church. They have authority over us as pastors and elders and deacons. We have to actually take a vow that we'll uphold the system of doctrine there in the Westminster Standards. And it's a secondary authority. It's not infallible. It's man-made. But we do believe that it is a helpful distillation of the doctrine that is taught in the Scriptures. And in the standards, we get a beautiful picture of how God makes himself our father, of what he does to bring us into this father-child relationship. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 12. It's about adoption. God guarantees the adoption of all those who are justified in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. Those adopted enjoy the liberties and privileges of God's children, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and disciplined by him as a father. They are never cast off, however, and are sealed until the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation." This is the kind of father we have, a father who puts his name on us and gives us access to the throne of grace where we can, in the most intimate terms, cry out to him as Abba, Father. He is a God of safety, a God of comfort. He is a God who welcomes us in and loves us. And he has done so through adoption. This is a process of choosing. He looks at us and says, I choose you. You are orphans, cast off in your sin and in your brokenness. But I look at you. I see you. I love you. I choose you to be mine, and I bring you home. This is the kind of love that your heavenly Father has for you. And so if you're here like me and you've got all kinds of scarring on your soul because of your earthly father, replace it with this kind of a father who sees you, loves you, chooses you, calls you home. 
There's a Dutch theologian named Herman Bovink. He's one of my favorites. He says this, Believers come to know the workings of the Father, the creator of all things, who gave them life and breath and all things. They learn to know him as the lawgiver who gave out his holy commandments in order that they should walk in them. They learn to know him as the judge who has provoked a terrible wrath by all the unrighteousness of men and who in no sense holds the guilty guiltless. And they learn to know him finally, ultimately, as the Father who for Christ's sake is their God and Father on whom they trust so far that they do not doubt that he will supply for every need of body and soul and that he will convert all evil which accrues to them in this veil of tears into good. They know that he can do this as almighty God and that he wants to do it as a faithful father. Hence they confess, I believe in God, the Father, the almighty creator of heaven and earth. This is the kind of God who calls himself father, who looks at us and says, I love you, who draws us close, and who will convert all evil which accrues to us in this veil of tears into good. Every sorrow, every heartbreak, every evil that we encounter in this world, our Father is able to take us and lead us from that place of pain into a place of worship as he converts all evil that we experience in this veil of tears into good. This is the kind of family that God creates for us, his people. This is the kind of love our Heavenly Father has for us. But now we ask the question what does it mean to live as an adopted child of God? God has seen me, loved me, chosen me, brought me home, called me his son, his daughter. Now what? How should I live as an adopted child of God? That leads us to our text this morning. That's what this text in 2 Corinthians is all about. It's about how we are to live now as the children of God. Paul argues in two primary ways throughout his writing. Sometimes he will state a principle and then he'll demonstrate all the practical outworkings of that principle. So principle first and then all the practical stuff. But other times he works backwards he does the practical stuff up front and then gives you the principle afterwards that undergirds it all. And, and this passage is like that. Practical stuff and then the principle underneath. And so we're going to read through it, but you're going to notice we're going to kind of study this passage a little bit backwards. We're going to look at the principle and then we're going to look at the practical prohibition that's built into this principle. The practical calling that's placed on each and every one of us as children of God because of this principle. But let's walk through the text really quickly. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We will come back to this, don't worry. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's an old Jewish way of describing Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Notice in this passage that Paul combines two images into one. The temple image 
and the family image. He says here in 16, we are the temple of the living God. And then down in 18, he says, you shall be sons and daughters to me. Temple language and family language combined. And by doing this, Paul is able to emphasize, using temple language, the characteristics of family members in the family of God. Because the temple, that implies certain things. When you bring the temple into view, stuff comes with it. First, primarily, worship. The temple was the center of worship for the Jewish people. Which means that we, the temple, the people of God, our job together as the family of God is to be a temple. It is to be worshipers. That's what it is to be a child of God. To be a child of God is to be a worshiper. That's why here at Goodwill Church, everything that we do is built around Sunday, Saturday night, and Sunday worship. Worship is the pulsing heart of our life together because it is the very reason we exist as children of God. We are transformed from sinners into worshipers, is what we do. That's part of what it is to be a part of this family. We are a worshiping people together. But notice he says that in this, that, that in this temple place, God will make his dwelling. I will make my dwelling among them. He will make a home among us. We don't make a home and invite God in, but we are orphans who were invited into the household of God. He makes a home in and among us. And so when we gather, when we come in to this space and we're here as the gathered corporate community, we're home together. And that means that if you're here for the very first time, never been to Goodwill Church before, but you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're just kind of checking this out, That means you're home here because these are your brothers and sisters and it's really nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. We're a home that God is building among us. I will make my dwelling among them. These are Old Testament quotes, all three of these. He's quoting from the Old Testament repeatedly and saying the, the whole teaching of the Bible is that God is our Father who makes a dwelling among us and he calls us to be a holy people, a holy family. The language here might remind some of you of what happens in the book of Genesis. I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, the reason that they hide is because they hear God walking in the midst of the garden. And neither of them respond as if this is strange. Because the garden of Eden was a temple place where God dwelled with his people and his people dwelled with him. And the whole purpose of it was to one day, one day lift from this mortal coil into glory if only our sin had not derailed that. He dwells among his people. He walks among his people. He makes a home among us. And so we, as adopted into the family of God, are brought home. And it's a home of safety And of comfort. If you look at the mission statement of Goodwill Church, you will find the Goodwill Church is to be a safe and comfortable place. That's home language. And and I know what it is to grow up in a household where every day when you wake up, you feel that pit in your stomach of fear and unpredictability because you don't know what kind of father is walking out of the bedroom. Is this a good day or a bad day? You don't know. 
But in this home, in God's house, the Father that comes to us and walks among us is always a safe, loving, choosing, sovereign God who loves you and welcomes you into his family. But not only are we given a home, we are given a calling. We are given a calling to live holy lives. Therefore, go out from their midst. This is Old Testament language that Paul is employing. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. We are moved from a different way of being, from orphanhood into a family of God, and that means there's a certain way we're to live within this family. We are to live in a way that reflects our Heavenly Father. He is the one who has adopted us. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who is transforming us by the power of His Spirit into the image of His Son. And so we are to be transformed. We're to change. We're not to be the same way that we were before. Holiness develops naturally out of the fatherhood relationship we have with God. We don't do the right thing out of some form of religious duty or legalistic rule book, but rather we pursue holiness because the God who has called us and named himself our Father, he is holy, and we want to be like him. That's what brings us back to the beginning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, there are a few passages in Scripture that will make you react with a shiver up the spine, like this one. If you went to youth group, this was a favorite. Whew. They trotted this verse out constantly because it meant one, one thing, one thing. Don't you dare date that unbelieving boy or girl. Don't you do it. Do not, be uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And they didn't really explain it. They just told you this is what God's word says, so don't do it. But here's what I've learned in my growth in the Lord and what I've learned even in my journey as a father is that prohibitions without principles produce legalism and rebellion. Prohibitions without principles produce legalism and rebellion. And I've learned this because there are times when I have said to my kids the same thing I think a lot of us have said to our kids. I don't want to explain myself, just do it. I don't, don't ask me why, just do it. Please, I'm asking you to. And at best, what you get from that is begrudging duty. <sighs> Fine. I stop off. But I've also found that if I'm willing to just sit down and talk to my child and say, here's why I don't want you to do this, by and large, they get it and they obey. Because I've explained the principle behind the prohibition. And therefore, it's not this legalistic fine or rebellion where they say, all right, so just don't tell dad. No. It's actual loving obedience. Because I've taken the time to sit down and say, here's why. Here's the principle. Here's the reason behind why I'm saying don't do this. And what we got growing up was don't be unequally yoked. Don't do it. With none of the principle underneath it. So let's look at the principle. 
This phrase is actually a paraphrase of an Old Testament law. And one day when I'm in glory and I'm talking with Paul, I'm going to ask him, how in the world did you find this little verse in the middle of Deuteronomy and decide you want to build a whole theology around it in 2 Corinthians? How? Here's the picture of being unequally yoked. I don't know if you can tell what this is. That this is an ox that has been yoked to a donkey. They're, they're combined. The yoke goes across. It ties them together. You would ordinarily yoke two oxen together to plow a field. But here you have an oxen yoked to a donkey. And there's a reason that the artist created this picture. This is literally the prohibition found in Deuteronomy chapter 22. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. No explanation. Straight up law. Don't do this. And, and Paul is building what we see in 2 Corinthians on the back of that verse. <laughs> what? Why? You ever read through the Old Testament law sometimes just gone, I, really? That's a law? But here's what's important to notice about this. God's laws are not, they're not frivolous. They're not just there because he's like, ha but I can stop him from doing that for fun. No. There's purpose. There's teaching. The law of God is revealing who God is. It's effectively a parable. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Here's what we learn. The ox, that's a clean animal. But the donkey is an unclean animal. And in the Old Testament way of doing things, under the law, if you mix clean and unclean, everything becomes unclean. That's why it's so scandalous when Jesus will walk up to a leper and touch the leper, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper is cleansed. That's the opposite of the principle of the Old Testament, that if you, if you are a clean person and you are with an unclean person, well, now you've been made unclean. And to be unclean means you can't enter into the place of worship. You can't have access to God. And here's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He cleanses us. He forgives us of our sins and he makes us clean. And we can make, never make ourselves unclean again because we've been touched by Christ himself, been made clean, and now we have access to this throne of grace. This is part of our adoption. We are cleansed. But the principle here is not about don't be with the wrong people. The principle here is don't Tie yourself back to uncleanness. Don't tie yourself back to uncleanness. Here's what Calvin says about this phrase and his thinking on Second uh, Corinthians. John Calvin says, When therefore God prohibits us, or Paul prohibits us, from having partnership with unbelievers and drawing the same yoke, he means simply this that we should have no fellowship with them in their pollutions. Paul's doctrine is of too general a nature to be restricted to marriage exclusively. For he is discoursing here as to the shunning of idolatry, on which account also we are prohibited from contracting marriages with the wicked. He's saying the principle of not marrying an unbeliever, that's a fine that's a fine prohibition, but there's something deeper underneath here. We don't participate in the wickedness of the world while calling ourselves believers and followers of Jesus. We're different people now. 
We've joined the family of God. He says elsewhere, it is no common honor that we are reckoned among the sons of God. This is a huge honor. This isn't a participation trophy. This is a massive honor. You are called the daughter or son of the Most High. It belongs to us then, in our turn, to take care that we do not show ourselves to be degenerate children to him. But what injury we do to God if while we call him Father, we defile ourselves with abominations of idols. Hence the thought of the high distinction to which he has elevated us ought to whet our desire for holiness and purity. You have been called a daughter and son of God, and that should create in you an appetite for the things of God. It should whet your appetite for holiness and righteousness. Which is why Paul continues by saying, don't be unequally yoked. Don't join the world in their wickedness. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? These are rhetorical questions. There is no partnership. What fellowship has light with darkness? Here's what you can do today when you go home. Be a little Father's Day game to play. Try and create light and darkness in the exact same space. Impossible. You can't do it. They cancel each other out. There's no fellowship between the two. What accord is Christ with Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Calvin, he helps us here. He says, listen, it doesn't mean we don't share the same sun or breathe the same air or live in the same world. No. But it does mean that when the world participates in wickedness, we don't dive in with them. So that the way our unbelieving neighbors speak should not coincide with the way that we speak. The values of unbelievers should not be the values of Christians. The things we care about, the things that drive us should not be the same as the things that drive the world. We are not the same, not because we are better, but because we have been rescued. We have been called into this family of God and he is our heavenly father and we are called to live that way and to pursue holiness with our lives. Because we are the temple of God, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. He dwells among us. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God is our heavenly Father, and that ought to transform how we live. Holiness and the pursuit of holiness is not a Christian checklist of, well, I guess I'm not allowed to do that, and I'm supposed to do that now. No, we have freedom in Christ. For freedom we have been set free, but it is freedom unto holiness because your heavenly Father has seen you and he loves you, and he chooses you, and he calls you home. Now let's think about three brief application points. I'm going to talk to three different groups in the room. It's Father's Day, and some of you may be here thinking, yeah, this is all really good, that's great, but what would be really helpful is just a little bit of advice on how to be a better father. And I totally get that. Here's the best fatherhood advice I've ever seen. 
This one was a game changer for me. It comes from a theologian and philosopher named James K.A. Smith. The best way to be a father is to point your children beyond you to a father who never fails. You're gonna mess up. Sometimes you're gonna mess up big. Your job for your children is not to be the perfect father. You can't be. But you can point beyond yourself and say, look at the heavenly father that we do have together. And I'm your father, and I'm going to try and follow him, and I'm encouraging you, son, I'm encouraging you, daughter, to follow me as I follow him. Because in this kingdom, in this family, I may be your earthly father, but I am your heavenly brother. And together we're pursuing the same heavenly father. This is the best advice I've ever seen. This freed me from so much baggage from my own father. You say, my job is not just to not be my father. My job is to point them to their heavenly father, the only one who can love them and act for them perfectly. And I need to trust that he loves them way more than I could possibly love them. And I need to give him the priority in my children's lives. James Smith wrote this as part of a book called On the Road with St. Augustine. I absolutely love this book. He talks about the Christian life as this journey of pursuing after God. And he uses uh, Kerouac, who wrote On the Road, and St. Augustine's confessions and his own experience. And uh, St. Augustine, he had this relationship with his father that he remarks on from time to time. It was a difficult relationship. He was born to a believing mother and an unbelieving father. His mother loved him dearly. His father was gone a lot. He was a soldier in the Roman military, and when his father was around, uh, Augustine tries to be gentle with it, but really, he was a mean drunk of a father. The only time his father ever seemed proud of him is when Augustine would join his father at the brothel or at the bar. And that's when his father said, that's my boy growing up to be a man. And he thinks back over this life, and he thinks about his father with a sense of disgust and, and alienation. He didn't understand his father. And, but but he, he had in him what a lot of us have, this natural desire to please our father and to be like our father. So he just started following in the same direction. And there was his mother praying and praying and praying. And not just praying for Augustine. She went to the local bishop. His name was Ambrose. He went to Ambrose and he said, hey, I need your help with my son. He's just, he's just following his father's footsteps. He's following the way of the world. And Ambrose looked at her and said, no way. <laughs> I'm not getting involved with this kid. He's a mess. Not doing it. But she persisted in asking over and over again, you got to help my son. And finally, Ambrose said, fine, just to get her to stop. Fine. I'll look in on your son. And Augustine, at this point, he was studying philosophy, studying the religions of the day, and he was very curious about the Christian faith and Christian theology, the same faith and theology of his mother. And so he's willing to get into these really highbrow conversations with Ambrose, who was a brilliant pastor and theologian of the time. But when Augustine thinks back to his relationship with Ambrose, he doesn't first go to, he was a great doctor of the faith, great orator, great leader in the church. No, what he says is, he was a great father figure to me. 
He was the father that my father never was. He was willing to stand in there and be a spiritual father to me. And so this is my advice for the men in the room. There are many people here with wounds or scars because of our earthly fathers. And you have the privilege and the obligation to demonstrate fatherhood to the people around you. To demonstrate a fatherhood that reflects on our heavenly father. And to speak into the lives of the people around you, particularly the lives of younger generation and say, look beyond me to our heavenly father. I know you're hurting, I know you're scarred. I know that he has fallen short time and time again. I know that you maybe don't even like your earthly father, but let me tell you there is a heavenly father who is greater than all of that. There is a heavenly father who sees you and loves you and chooses you and brings you home. So the men in this congregation, you have the privilege of being Ambrose to somebody. That's what James Smith says. He says, indeed, to be adopted by a heavenly father is to be enfolded in a new household where family is redefined and bloodlines are transcended by the genealogy of grace. In the household of God's grace, you find sisters and brothers you never knew you had and father figures where you didn't expect to find them. God's grace has been tangible for me as it was with Augustine, in no small part because God has lavished me with Ambroses in my life. There are wounds and scars from the fathers that left, but they have been healed because of the fathers I found in the body of Christ, who chose me without obligation, loved me without reservation, were present when others were absent, who know me and yet still love me. Men of the church, this is part of our responsibility to those around us to be Ambrose to the many Augustans that are hurting among us. Finally, a note for everyone. Fathers, there's a little bit of advice for you men, a bit of advice for you now, a little bit of advice for everybody. If we were to continue in 2 Corinthians, this is the next verse. Since we have these promises, the promises of a God who is a heavenly father to us, who sees us and loves us and chooses us and brings us home, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And you might be looking at that and saying, hold on, I thought this was a God we don't have to fear. This is a father that doesn't strike fear in our hearts, and you're right. You're right, but let's consider the kind of God that we've been talking about. A father who comes to you, who is safe, who is comforting, who even saw you in your sin and loved you anyway, who adopted you to be his child, who routinely welcomes you back in and forgives you when you fall short. This is the kind of father we're talking about. And when that father walks in the room, you don't have to cower with fear, but you can approach with reverence and worship that this kind of a father would look at you and call you son or daughter. That's the kind of fear that Paul has in mind here. It is a profound reverence before our heavenly father that he would see us and love us and call us his own. And each and every one of us are called to replace our understanding of fatherhood with that understanding of fatherhood and to live accordingly. Our holiness, a natural fruit from this kind of love relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the privilege of calling you Father. We thank you that we are daughters and sons of the Most High. And Lord, many of us here, we struggle with Father's Day and what all that that means for us, the pain in our hearts. Many of us hurt because of our fathers. Many of us hurt because of things we've done as fathers. We thank you that you don't, you don't leave us to define fatherhood for ourselves, but you demonstrate fatherhood by seeking us out, seeing us even in our brokenness and sin, loving us, choosing us to be your own, adopting us into your family, calling us home. So Father, I pray the first step of healing for many who are wounded by fatherhood I pray our first step of healing would be to get a clear understanding of who you are as Heavenly Father. And would we know what it is to be loved by our Heavenly Father? And would you help us, by the power of your Spirit, to live as your children, to honor you who have loved us so deeply, who have adopted us into your own family, would we honor that with the way we live our lives? And would our obedience naturally be derived out of a love relationship, daughter and son, with our Heavenly Father? Holy Spirit, we need your help. Don't let us go back to yoking with unclean things and participating in the wickedness and pollution of the world. No. Remind us again and again we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and calls us to a different way of being and living and loving and thinking. Do that transformative work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.